So welcome, uh, honored today to have uh, Gary with us. Uh, you've been coming to Yogaville for quite some time now? Probably 10 years mm. more or less, mm. yeah, I think so. So we must be doing something right to have you keep coming back. Huh? Yeah, I like being here. It feels very comfortable, almost like home. Everybody's really kind mm. to me. And uh, the food keeps getting better and better. It does, right? Yeah, it does. <laughs> Which is important when people are staying for any length of time. So That's I right. like it here. Nice. Good. And I feel close to some of the people here as well. And I knew Swami Sachinananda. Well, let me rephrase that. I had the honor of meeting him several times uh, in different locations. Once the first time was in Switzerland um, at a yoga conference. And I actually sat next to him for a meal. And the second time was for a meal in Hawaii, uh, in Maui, where I lived for 30 years. And Swami Satchananda was a fan of Maui and came there many times. So I feel close to his spirit and happy to be a part of what his legacy is here. Hmm. And do you feel like his, his spirit is reflected here um, still without him being in the body? That You mentioned kindness. Did you also feel that from him when you met him in person? I felt both kindness and humor mm. and wisdom. And certainly the kindness is here. And uh, the ambiance of the, of the wisdom teachings are here. And humor is an individual thing. Mm. But I would say that aspects of his spirit and his vision are here. And I think they're aspects of it, since you asked me directly and you told me to just say, be honest. Please. I think that there are aspects of his vision that have yet to have been activated in the way that they could be activated. Hmm. Anything specific come to mind? Oh, yes, very yeah. specifically. Uh, the shrine, hmm. which is interfaith dialogue and uh, helping people really understand the depth of spirituality from all the different traditions are pointing to the same human experience. I feel like um, it's a shrine when, and um, when I hear the word shrine, I, it doesn't feel like it's alive and dynamic and active. It feels like something that was. Mm. And I'm hesitant to say this because I know this is being recorded, but I mean it in a, a, a loving and affectionate way. I've always wished that Somehow, Swami Satchin, excuse me, Swami Satchin on his great vision of interfaith dialogue, um, uh, more could be done with it. I don't know what the answer to is, but so I think like that was clearly his legacy. I would love to see more happening in that field. That's honest. Yeah, me too. That was what what drove me to stay here. Actually, was going to see Lotus when I, you know, went around and and saw the similarities between. It was so obvious. Right, you go from each section. I mean, isn't it right here on the cup? Yeah. I mean, it's a symbol, it's a living, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but yeah. I just noticed it on the cup. It's the living symbol that you have everywhere. And the how, the question is how to bring it forward more. The world's in a crisis now. Hmm. And Swami Satchinanda had a vision, I think, I honestly believe that uh, is needed in this world. And I, I don't know. I don't. I don't know how, but I. That would be the piece that was missing for me, here. So, you mentioned the world being in a crisis. What's the role of yoga? We have a big role. Um, 
we've seen some of it already happening. My, my thoughts about the role of yoga um, that can come from these ancient teachings and, and uh, offer something to modern civilization. The first part of it has already begun to spread, which is yoga as a system of health and fitness. Of course, that's a reductionism of yoga. But nonetheless, it's a useful thing. The science of breath and movement, asana and pranayama, um, and conscious eating, healthy lifestyle, that has an, that's an important thing for all people to learn. So many of the healthcare crisis, so many of the conditions that people suffer from that, that are part of the healthcare crisis and the overload in our hospitals, so many of these conditions uh, are related to lifestyle. Not all of them, of course, but many of them are related to lifestyle. And people becoming more self-conscious of their activity and taking more uh, steps to be proactive in their own health care um, would go a long way to help one aspect of what we're suffering with as a society, so health and fitness. Um, the next piece, I think, that yoga, um, it's coming now with, through organizations like International Association of Yoga Therapists, is self-care and then um, um, even managing one's own condition. So they're all related ideas. Health and fitness is a little different than uh, therapy and self-care. So yoga you know, therapy teaches people how, where they, when they've already been diagnosed uh, with some condition or other, how they can begin to manage their own symptoms and become more independent in their own self-care. So they're related fields. And the third piece is what I was talking about earlier, I think, which is um, uh, mm, personal inner development and transformation, um, the spiritual dimension of life, the uh, conscious teachings about consciousness, and helping people surface, helping us as human beings surface our motivations behind our actions and helping move people from sort of a self-oriented and selfish motivation to a more selfless and other-oriented, service-oriented uh, way of being will go a long way. A lot of the problems that we have is because we're greedy and we want more, even at the expense of others as a society. This is a generalization, of course. And then the other piece of that is um, what I talked about earlier, interfaith dialogue. So much of what we have is cross-cultural misunderstanding and um, conflict uh, based on a lack of deeper recognition that actually our deeper values and beliefs are actually more similar than they are different. So some more kind of interfaith dialogue and cross-cultural communication, I think, is something that yoga can also offer. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense to me. I'm very interested in this, the, the conversation around um, service, selflessness, selfishness, greed, right? Um, so, because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding that happens uh, when you talk about sacrifice and being selfless. Like, what does that actually do? Because if you look at nature, right, a lot of nature is selfish. What is it really, even the word selfish, you know, what does it mean? To me, selfishness can be split into two parts, kind of the confused selfish and the intelligent selfish. 
So on the intelligent side of, of, of being selfish, and I think what your point and what you're trying to say even is that it's in our self, uh, our self-interest to serve. Ultimately, it's in our self-interest. But we are coming from there as an expanded vision of self. Mm. Right? So the me and mine. Me and mine, uh, Krishnamacharya used to say, me and mine is the root of suffering. It isn't something that he invented, of course, but that grasping for things. Um, and in nature, you're right. Survival is the first biological imperative. Survival, reproduction, and then finding our status in our society, or like, let's say, symbolized by the first three chakras, survival, reproduction, and status. Um, and mammals of all sorts have that same drive. It's sort of part of our evolutionary biology. But when you get above into the dimension of the heart, where you're less self-oriented, or you can say you have an expanded vision of what self means. So now self isn't just me and my body, but it's also my family. And then you realize that your family is part of a bigger community and your society. And when we realize as a species that we're on this planet together and we're all family, then that's an expanded vision of selfish. Right. And I think on that level too, what, what can we do for the entire community as a whole? And then maybe the answer is if we all just took care of ourselves, taking care of the self, in a way, the self-care, as you mentioned, in a way that's taking care of the whole community. And maybe we're in this arena of dysfunction. And so what, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about is because we've gotten to a place of not prioritizing the health of, of ourselves, right? Like kind of becoming greedy and in this, you know, I, me, mine type of thing, that is leading to an area of, of dis-ease, I would say, or lack of health, yeah, right? Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I don't know if there was a question there. I so the question is, 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 is like how, because it seems so obvious to just have a priority of, of taking care of, of our health. But it seems when we've gotten to a place where many people are not prioritizing their own health. So how is that happening that we wouldn't prioritize our health? Well, we're distracted and pulled outward into mm -hmm. the world around us through, you know, advertising, media. You know, the, we do have real needs. And as we do have real needs for food, clothing, shelter, I guess today we'd have to say food, clothing, shelter, transportation, and internet access, <laughs> right. you know, as the sort of fundamental needs. Um, and then if, once you go out into that realm, there's like always more and we need better, we need more of this and we need more of that. And the whole society is based on consumerism. Um, but like how to shift that, I think this is an issue of svadharma. There are a lot of uh, people that are called to be social, social activists. You think of the yoga community, there are people that are called to teach yoga in prisons. There's others that are called to live in a cave and meditate. So I think that if each individual can become in closer contact with their own svadharma, what we call svadharma, um, there's, no, there's no formula that we can say. I think your idea is a good one, that if everyone could just... Mm, Take deep, pay, pay deeper attention to what self-care really means. Live a healthy lifestyle with an expanded sense of self, recognizing that if you're doing well, but your neighbor isn't doing well, then you're not really doing well. Mm -hmm. uh, but how to organize a society around that, it's difficult to say for me. Mm -hmm. So my, my own personal svadharma has been to teach the sort of uh, deeper teachings of yoga and the multidimensionality of practice. There's a reductionism in the West 
Western understanding, and it's not only in the West, not too long ago, I was teaching in New Delhi to 80 uh, Indian yoga teachers, and I felt like I could have been in Los Angeles mm -hmm. in terms of the fixation on asana and performance of posture. So for me, the Dharma has been to educate the community that yoga is not just asana. Yoga is a multidimensional science that includes asana and pranayama and chanting and mantra and meditation and inner practices of a tantric yoga nature and personal ritual so that people see the breadth of this system and then individuals find their own way into the practices that are most meaningful for them and through that sort of inner practices and self-investigation they start discovering what their particular svadharma is and how they want to manifest this consciousness in the world and i think for me that's my personal choice if if we just go deeper into our, for those of us who are teachers, deeper into the study and practice uh, of yoga and uh, share that with more and more students. They'll all find their own way. So I don't have a formula about how it should yeah. look, but I do believe, you know, that, you know, for personal growth and transformation for the individual, like I talked about healthness, excuse me, I talked about health and fitness and then therapy and self-care, but I think also personal growth and inner transformation that is a, the deepest part, I think, of what yoga can really offer this crisis time. Because if people wake up, they're all going to manifest what that wake up looks like in different ways. Mm. But it'll be all collectively towards up-leveling everything. That's what I hope or think. Anyway. Mm. Mm. Well, and the other piece, I'll add one more piece. Because the vision of Swami Satchinananda. And I don't know for sure him talking to me personally about his vision, but I just see it, this yantra or mandala, you know, of the shrine and the shrine itself. He had a, he evidently, like I have in my own personal study, felt that world religions from all over the di different cultures contain the essence or the secrets of the meaning and purpose of life. And we're in conflict about it with each other over all kinds of reasons. And so I think this interfaith dialogue in particular is uh, an offering that Swami Satchinanda envisioned for Yogaville. Um, and I think if we can bring people together around this recognition that all these different faiths are pointing to the same ultimate truth, I think that's another piece that's important. Mm. Right, and what is the ultimate truth that, you know, that they're pointing to? And... I think instead of getting caught in the in the the camp that you're in is his point rather let's focus on truth what is truth what do we what do we feel is truth um, but I, I wanted to uh, ask you about Svadharma uh, and the, the current time that we're living in and what perhaps is an obstacle in actualizing your Svadharma so uh, is, is it a challenge now due to the exposure and the number of messages that we're getting to feel that, that you have even something to offer to get to that place? Because so many people's lives are being broadcast to you all the time. It, you feel that everything's already been done. Like, what, can, what, what does it matter what I have to do? There's so many humans out there. There's so many people doing all different things. Like, so it's maybe even this feeling that like, does my life matter? Does it matter to discover my Svadharma? Okay. Interesting question. 
you know, speaking from the existential perspective, you know, this was resolved in, in our Western Bible, you know, I don't know how many thousands of years ago, you know, in Ecclesiastes. In, he talks about uh, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, and the striving after wind. Um, what is the meaning and purpose? No matter what we do, does it change anything? But that kind of is, uh, that questioning way of thinking is, like you could jokingly call that a mantra of, his, of despair. Mm. There's no meaning or purpose. That's not of our business. That's the way I was taught. You know, that, that kind of reflection doesn't serve anything. Mm. You wake up, you know, you live your experience. You want to find the actions that you can engage in. You want to, let, let's say it this way, and this is like an, sort of a Western American presentation of Sanatana Dharma. Um, uh, we want to find an, um, sort of uh, a meaning and purpose in this life so that we don't feel like there's meaninglessness. We, we're all going to look for that meaning and purpose in life. We want to find true sources of happiness and the ability to experience more and more happiness in each moment and each day. And we want to find that meaning and purpose and that source of happiness in the face of the reality of change impermanence, as the tradition says, says, and the inevitability of, uh, of death, ultimately. Um, my teacher said to me when I was 19 in India that if you really want to know the purpose of yoga, it's preparation for the moment of death. Now, that's not something the average 19-year-old you know, wants to hear, and certainly not the average asana practitioner in America wants to hear that the real purpose of yoga was preparing for the moment of death, but it's a very important... Maybe they do want to hear. <laughs> well, yeah, it's an important teaching. Like, how do you find a meaning in your daily experience? How do you find a purpose? The mind sets a direction for our future. So if we're just running after mundane needs, we're never really thinking about end of life. So my teacher used to say, now this is not a prescription because not everybody has a strong enough manasprakriti sort of mental constitution to handle this but my teacher used to say meditate on death he actually said to me so die now yeah. and he wasn't meaning physical death he was like die to your attachments yeah. uh, your self-importance um, and and in the in this reflection try to see what's really important like we're on this we're in this life i just did a live stream thing for the Global Yoga Therapy Day, and it was called the River of Life Meditation. In that sort of symbolism, you know, we were born like that, like the water emerging from a mountain spring, that pure innocence. And then if you imagine the, the spring filling and going down like a stream and then merging with other streams into the river, and now we're in, launched into the river of our life. We, were, we are the same water as that pure, innocent water that like we emerged from the mystery of our mother's womb. Like that water, pure purity of water emerges from the mystery of Mother Earth. But we know where this river is heading. It's heading to the ocean. That's end of life. And if you think about when you were that innocent little child, if you can go back in your earliest memories till now, time passes quickly. And here you are. And if you look ahead, you know that that river is flowing inexorably to the sea. And that's end of life. So with this kind of reflection, if you're strong, it helps you sort out quickly what is really important. It helps you find, and it may take time, to surface what's important for all of us to achieve in this life before we reach the end. And of course, the way that uh, we're taught in the yoga tradition is that when 
we reach the ocean, it's not over. You know, and, and what happens to us along the way and where we are in that moment of death is what will influence what happens to us next. So these are kinds of reflections that sort of snap us out of our sort of dream of the importance of, you know, piling up gold in the waiting room for death. Do you know what I mean? And, and help us get in touch with for what for us is going to give us that sense of meaning and fulfillment. Right. So can I ask you what, what's important to you? What matters to you? Well, <laughs> um, for me, the whole thrust of my life has been the study and practice of these inner teachings of yoga to, to, to awaken to true nature, to um, what Krishnamacharya told me is, um, uh, this idea of viveka kyati, which is the dawning of discrimination, discriminative awareness, so that we can see things as they are, and purusha uh, kyati, which you can think of as self-realization, awakening to our true nature, um, becoming established in our true nature, and ishvara kyati, which is God realization. They're all the same process. So for me, that's the highest thing that I've oriented my life towards: the continued study inner practice to awaken to that. And then uh, in my Dharma as a teacher to share the deeper teachings as, uh, of yoga as authentically as I'm able, uh, without faking or pretending I'm something I'm not, of course. And then uh, at a personal level, uh, it's the, the family, my, my sort of nuclear family, but also my friend, fam my, the broader family of my friends and community to, to share the best of myself with them and, and to uh, offer as it's relevant or relevant to them uh, elements of these teachings that can serve them. And so that's, that's what my life has been. I, I met my teacher when I was 19 in India. And so that's 45 or so years ago. Is that right? Yeah, more or less, 45 years ago. So I've been in this Dharma for all that time. The, the deeper knowing, if, if you found some layers to it, do you, do you feel that the deeper, the deeper knowing is that we're all connected to each other? So the way... <laughs> interesting questions um, you know that I'm not sure if you're asking that at a metaphysical level I'm not sure where you're asking that from it's clear that we're all connected to each other mm. we're connecting now and through this medium we're connect, connecting all around the world there's a whole sort of philosophical systems in India that had uh, contentious debates about dualism and non-dualism and qualified non-dualism and, and even anat when the Buddha said no self. So if you're asking the question about connectivity, the plurality of purushas, I don't know if you're even thinking about that, but you know, the, you know, are there many of us or are we all one? Um, that's an interesting question. And the ancients have debated that for centuries. Um, to me, those are epistemological models. They're not, they're not really important except in, in a way that it shapes our, the nature of our inquiry and our own personal practice. Um, without getting metaphysical, I would say that, that it's pretty obvious that we're all interconnected. 
and interdependent. You know, it's paradoxical that one of the ways my teacher described one of the fundamental goals of yoga, and it's described by the term kaivalya, and you can say independence, but it's recognition, I think, deeper, like this broader sense of self, it's interdependence, because we all are inseparably connected. That's what I think. Yeah, I think so too. And if this is the truth, you know, how have we gotten to a place where it's so common to compete against our well, brothers and sisters? Obvious. It's the, the fundamental teachings of yoga and actually of world religions. Yoga says it's beginningless ignorance. They use the term avidya. And because we don't know who we are, we construct this separate identity and we conceive of ourselves as separate. And in, your, in the churches and stuff, they have this idea of original sin. And, uh, you know, a lot of people understand in the Western religion, like Christianity, that sin is the opposite of virtue. virtue. But actually, if you study more deeply, they posit sin is the opposite of faith. And faith mm. is the self-standing and right relationship to itself before God. So, so sin, in that sense, is like avidya in yoga teachings. That's where it starts. It starts because we're, uh, we conceive ourselves as separate beings. The infant doesn't, but at a certain point we do. And then we construct the ego, and then we're looking for all the things that will reinforce our ego. I mean, these are basic, you know, fundamental yoga 101, yoga philosophy 101. And then that's also, and, and Swami Satchitananda knows that. That's, those are the essential teachings in all the world religions. That's the fall. The avidya is the fall. Yeah, it's just interesting that we've gone so far from from that. It's like, yeah. Well, human beings have been going that, doing that since the beginning of recorded history, right? right? And then, as a solution to that, I don't know if solution's the right word, but there appeared great teachers and great teachings to try and help people understand there's a different way, right. and that's the journey of. The, the, the non-dogmatic journey of religion. And that's what I agree with Swami Satchitananda is sort of, that what I'm saying that I agree with him, meaning that I, the symbolism of the, the Lotus Shrine and the mandala that you guys use, that's saying, hey, all the teachings of the world are pointing to the same thing, wake up. Stop fighting each other with superficial differences and look for, like you said, look at the truth. And that's the journey of yoga and that to your original question is what I think yoga can offer to the world at multiple levels. You gotta find a doorway in. For most people, the most simple access to this journey of yoga is helping them understand their physical body, make it look better so they're prettier, or help them ease back pain and sleep better and have more energy. So that yoga and yoga therapy is like a door opener. But the, what's important is that teachers are trained beyond just that so that they can then inspire uh, students who get excited by yoga because of its effectiveness to learn more of the deeper teachings. But if the teachers don't know it, then you can't give what you don't have. So if all you know is guide them in this asana, you can go only go so far in supporting them. So that's coming back to my svadharma. For me, the journey has been about trying to educate teachers more and more about the breadth and depth of the yoga tradition. Yeah. It's one of the obstacles, like how just common it is to speak as if there's no other way but to try to be phony. And I'll give an example, like with yoga asana, for example, like, yeah, we're doing this so that we can 
can look good and then go to the beach, right? That, that's why we're doing our practice. And it's almost like it's just accepted that that's, that's what we do. And, uh, you know, even before someone, you know, a visitor comes to your house, you know, you're cleaning everything and image and you're putting on makeup and maybe there's a place for that that's accepted. But it seems like it's gone very deep in the direction of almost, I would call phoniness for lack of a better word, as opposed to is, isn't the truth more that nothing can be faked that genuine is, isn't that what yoga is? It's about genuine. Like I, I'm making myself healthy and what someone else thinks on me uh, about me uh, from outside is really not a, any of my business. My focus is again, taking care of the self, making it healthy and what other people think is just, not my concern. You have passion about these things, don't you? Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I would say that um, that uh, th there's a me culture, and it's really superficial, like how I look and what I wear and all of that. It, in the Mahabharata, which is a relatively ancient text, they say in the in the, this yoga, people will be judged by their hairstyle. That's a sign of decline. And that's what's actually happening now. So we measure our worth by our appearance, by who we know, by how many likes we have in our Facebook or Instagram page. That's all symptomatic of the me, sort of self-oriented culture. Um, you use the word fake, and, and I think the other, the, the nice word is authenticity. And one of the, the sort of essential teachings about yoga is, is to be authentic. There's no need to add anything else. Who you are, you know, the yoga teaching is, is, is who you are is the unchanging source of pure awareness. And as you rest more deeply in, as we rest more deeply in oneself, the experience is more and more joyful uh, and less dependent on things appearing or being a certain way in the world around us. Um, but that's not how we live. We're, we're, we have conditioning from our own past lives, if you believe in that, of course. And we have conditioning from our bio data and conditioning from society around us. Uh, and so the, one of the other gifts of yoga uh, is that it can give you the strength to stand on your own two feet. That's what even Swami Satchidananda, I heard him say, you know, the hardest posture is standing on your own two feet. Hmm. Um, and the yoga can give you the strength to be more independent of the sort of opinions of everybody around you and help you connect more and more to your own authentic self. I don't know if that's responding. Yeah, to no, I mean, I think it's related to what you said about having a meditating on death, you know, even coming, coming to grips with that, because then it's this liberating, freeing thing. Okay, I've gone there. I've, I see where the ocean goes. Now I can be the stream or... I would rephrase that. You don't see where the ocean goes. All you know is you're heading there. You're heading there. And that's a mystery. Yeah. But you have to open to that mystery. But the other insight about that is that although you can influence the destination, you can influence the quality of your journey. Mm. And, uh, and the idea of yoga and uh, recognition that the mind sets a direction for the future. So you have the potential to shape the remaining days of your life. And, in, in, you know, if you're 18, you know, there is different than if you're 40, what that sentence means, perhaps, but you don't know. The moment of death is uncertain. Mm -hmm. So the ancients said the moment of death is uncertain. When we die, it's not over. So there's no time to lose. We need to do the work to wake up right now. Because where we are in that moment of death, it's going to influence what happens next. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we want to do is arrive at the ocean 
not with fear and bitterness, resentment, and like, oh my God, I didn't do this and that and regret, but with peace, maybe even joy, um, and maybe even curiosity about what's next. And that, that we can influence. We can't influence where we're going ultimately, but we're, we can influence the journey. We can't even really influence when it's going to end. We don't know. We can do our best, but, you know, the moment of death is uncertain. It seems that maybe, you know, humans have a tendency to want to fight against the nature of reality, right? Or know too much, like not just be in this present situation that is very limited, right? Almost as if, you know, our intelligence in a way is our boon. Uh, because, uh, you know, we're so smart. We think we can, we can know so many things. We think we can know everything, but although we know a lot, right. And especially in this modern age, look at all the things that we know and, and with medicine, especially, right. Uh, going into hospitals, right. I I think about the ego of the, of the medical profession, right. And the things that were, were common 20 or 30 years ago now have changed and, why is it so difficult to see that 20, 30 years into the future from now, they're going to look back on things that we're doing in the present and say, oh, okay, that's what they thought then. Wasn't that silly? Uh, uh, yeah, it's another comment. I don't know. If yeah, it's, so if this, you know, if it's important to acknowledge that that's an obstacle, even our knowing, and as we know more and more to, to release it and say, you know, there's so much that I can't know. Basically, to have a humility. Where's the practice in the yoga world for being humble? Yes. So, I mean, I think, yeah. There, I mean, you said a bunch of things just then. And, like, I would think that intelligence is negentropic. You know, intelligence can grow and grow. I mean, human beings are doing extraordinary things. We're learning more and more about the mysteries of this life, this universe that we find ourselves in, and gaining progressive mastery over nature. That's, I mean, the ancient yogis were, you know, their phrase in Tantra would be seduce the forces of nature. So they gain higher levels of mastery and control. That recognizing that's yogic, that we can influence the direction of change. We can shape the direction of change. And that's the positive side of what humanity, I think, is doing with technology and science. But if we get self-important about it and think we know everything uh, and crystallize our ideas, which will stop further growth. A lot of times people want to sort of preserve their turf of knowledge and they're not willing to open to something else because they've concluded that they've become self-important in their knowledge rather than maintaining the humility that creates the I don't know and openness and I want to continue to learn that that catalyzes new discoveries and, and new growth. Um, I think that what the, it just like linking this back to Patanjali and the yoga teachings, and Patanjali is talking about in uh, the first chapter, he talks about the obstacles to a clear mind. And one of them that I think is relevant to what you're talking about is called Branti Darshana. And Branti Darshana, I was always taught as a particular obstacle to teachers. It's like becoming self-satisfied with your knowledge and thinking mm. you have a distorted uh, a sense of yourself, thinking you know more than you actually may know. Um, and that's a, an interesting obstacle. And you see that even in the yoga world. Uh, I mean, like you talked about the sort of self-importance doctors who won't even listen to the patients because they know, they don't even, you know, and really it's not true altogether. Sometimes the patient has more insight than about what's going on for them than the doctor does. 
But there are some kinds of old-style doctors where they don't even care what the patient thinks because they know. That's, that's lack of humility and sort of landing in self-importance around your, your knowledge. Um, Bhante Darshan is, a, is a trap for yoga teachers. Some yoga teachers become successful because of charisma and, and skills at Instagram or whatever. And that success disincentivizes them for continuing to learn. They know enough or they think they already know. Mm. A lot of yoga teachers have really limited idea about the breadth of yoga teachings, but they become self-satisfied in their limited knowledge. Well, then uh, also I'd like to ask the relationship between contentment and then striving for more growth, right? What's that balance there between feeling, feeling content and then also realizing that there's always more to learn? You're asking great and interesting questions. <laughs> and I, unfortunately, there's no simple answers to that. There's a dynamic tension uh, between contentment. Contentment's about how we take experience, that it doesn't uh, throw us out of our equilibrium and or balance. Uh, but I would think that a passion to learn, passion to continue to grow and learn, um, and con- contentment are hand in hand. Mm. Contentment doesn't mean self-satisfaction, so I can sit back on my chair, smoke a cigar, have a good single malt, yeah. everything's fine, and then life is over. I think the same thing with self-care. You know, self-care doesn't necessarily mean to lay around and do nothing. Self-care can be getting out there and, you know, finding your svadharma. Well, that is svadharma. Yeah. So, for somebody, self-care means they become socially active and they go to help wherever there's a natural cri- national crisis. Mm-hmm. For somebody else, self-care includes, share, like for me, sharing the knowledge that I've received from these great teachers. I've had very unusual and, and fortunate karma that my life brought me into contact, intimate personal contact with not just one, but several really elevated world teachers. So I feel like I've received this precious teachings and that's my personal dharma and self-care is share it, mm-hmm. get to share it. I can't, I can't get stagnant and just self-satisfied in my own life. But what it is going to look like for each person is different. And I think there's a little, this is like a, an aside, but I've noticed that some people start to feel guilty when they see other people doing great things, feeling guilty that they are not doing those things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a a mistake. I mean, you should be joyful when you see people doing great things, but you shouldn't feel guilty that you're not doing it. You need to find what's yours to do. And just because someone you respect and admire is going to Jamaica or whatever for the earthquake, whatever, just pick one thing that I remember when I was helping somebody who was feeling sort of guilty and self-conscious that she didn't feel motivated to go. And I said, that's not, that's, that's great. You should be happy that they're doing that. That's not a judgment of you. What is it that you feel like doing that you have to offer? Nobody should be felt that they have to be anything but who they truly are. Mm. You know, one of the Chinese expressions that I I used to share, and I shared it with my teacher, and he really loved it. Um, And it's an old Chinese expression. It says, nothing that enters through the front gate can be a family treasure. So in that symbolism, the gate are the senses. Mm. You know, in the ancient times, the treasure was buried in the hearth. That's a symbol of the heart. So there's nothing, you don't have to go to India to import something. Anything that, that's really of value, deep value and ultimate treasure for you, family treasure that's yours, is already inside you. So our work is to uncover it, not try to be something that you're not or be like somebody, imitate somebody else who you admire, but do the 
the deep work of finding out what's yours to do and who you really are. It's a different kind of game, right? I think that we have to, or it would maybe serve us to shift our attention toward, you know, this game of just self-discovery as opposed to the comparative thing. Because the comparative thing, it's, it's even... It's I think I, I, it's endless, exactly. On a very rational level, it's like, how can you even begin to compare two people? Like, what, you can put them on a spreadsheet and, and start to add numbers? And, I mean, it's, it, it's ridiculous. You can't know what it's like to be someone else. You can't know what it's like to, to, to have their experiences. Yet, a lot of our, you know, uh, social conversation is comparing, you know, groups of people and individuals and all that, as opposed to... Um, you know, just the inner work. What is yeah. what is it about with myself? It's like seeing an adventure land, you know, within the self of discovery and growth and having that be, you know, the new game. I mean, look, to me, because even people have turned yoga into like a path of accomplishment and, you know, maybe I can get to that more advanced series or do that more advanced asana. Like, so what, you know? Look at the Chinese acrobats. Good luck, you know, if you think you're going to be, or Cirque du Soleil, you know. If that's what yoga is, it's really got not a lot to offer. But yoga is this journey of deep self-investigation, self-discovery, and self-transformation. And we're multidimensional. We're anatomy, we're physiology, we have a mind that has emotions, and we set a, we have a narrative, a cognitive uh, sort of story about ourselves and the world around us, and we set a direction for our future, and we're acting in the world. There's yoga teachings about each of those dimensions that integrated yoga practice should address all of that to help us surface who we really are so that we can live meaningful, fulfilling lives and be of service to our families, our communities, and arguably to the whole planet. Hmm. Uh, shifting a little bit, because another question I wanted to ask you specifically uh, about kind of Hatha yoga uh, and in the classroom. Um, what have you found leads to uh, the most injuries? What causes the most injuries? And what would you say, you know, prevents injury from happening? Um, well, there's a couple of things that cause injuries. One is practicing mechanically and thinking that postures are forms to be attained and using mus muscular effort without a lot of awareness of what's happening in your body. Um, so it's you, a shift in perspective that it's not about practicing postures and achieving form. It's about un using the postures to understand what's happening in your body and then using the postures as tools to transform your body. Um, one of the other things is consistent practice over time that leads to injury, besides pushing yourself in ways you shouldn't push yourself, is that most of us are unconscious of our neuromuscular movement patterns. And so even when you're doing yoga, as, yoga asana, asana practice, um, if you're not self-conscious of your movement patterns, all your movements in yoga, will in asana practice, will reinforce those patterns. So people who've been practicing for decades often, even less, 10 years can begin, even less can begin sooner, develop what's called repetitive stress injury. They develop soft tissue damage because even though they're doing their postures the way they think they should, they're not paying attention to how they're moving. And so they're creating dysfunctional movement patterns or they're reinforcing dysfunctional movement patterns that ultimately uh, create damage to soft tissue, ligamentous sprains, 
tendons, sprains, meniscus tears, etc. They're very common. The third thing is letting a teacher, even a well-intentioned teacher who maybe doesn't have the education they should, adjust you. And thinking that, and the teacher's thinking that they need to help their students do the postures correctly. So the teachers themselves are a big cause of injuries to practitioners by giving the students the false idea that they have to push themselves to get into postures or even in allowing the teachers to do hands-on adjustments. So the most important thing is you stop forcing your body in postures and you think about them differently. They're mirrors to help you understand and transform your condition. They're not goals to achieve. Mm. Um, then recognize that if you practice consistently, even if you're not like forcing your body, but you're not aware of your movement patterns, your practice is going to reinforce those movement patterns. And those movement patterns are causal factors in a lot of, of the structural interests we have. Repetitive stress injuries, how the physical therapists uh, relate to it. And the third thing is be very careful about letting a teacher adjust you. Mm. Most yoga teachers don't know that most yoga teacher insurance policies actually uh, don't cover hands-on adjustments. Um, and mm. so you want to be careful about Though I've worked with people over, I've been in this field for 45 years. I've worked mm. with people, um, lots of people, over hundreds of people who've been injured by well-intended yoga teachers who did hands-on adjustments. And, you know, the last thing I'll say, and this is going public, I know, I don't know if that matters, but, <laughs> you know, there are certain postures that the American yoga community or the Western world, the modern world loves to do that are problematic postures in and of themselves. Mm. I'll just give you one example. You all love it, I think. It's pigeon. Mm. According to my teacher, people should just give up doing it altogether mm. for the hip and the knee. Um, and the real pigeon is a backbend, but the way we do it is a yeah. forward bend. So there's some problematic postures. There's a, that's one, problematic postures. Two, a wrong attitude about postures, thinking that they're goals to achieve rather than means of transforming your own body, means of discovering and transforming your own body. The third one is about this neuromuscular patterning. That's an important thing to recognize that if you don't become, this is about samskara, the deeper teachings of yoga are to surface our samskaras so we can become free of them. A movement pattern is like a samskara, a neuromuscular samskara. If you don't become conscious of it, you can't change it. If you don't, and if you're moving, then you're just reinforcing it. So that one, not letting teachers address you, is the other one. Be very careful about that. Um, that kind of covers. And the other, there is another thing, which is not understanding correctly the science of sequencing. If you put postures together in the wrong order, the very postures that can be helpful can actually become harmful. So learning how to sequence postures, and it's not choreography. There's a lot of people in the yoga world who make their sequences like dance and they're choreographically sound, creative and, and beautiful in that way, but they're not balancing the stresses of the postures correctly in relation to their body. So the wrong sequence of postures practiced over a longer period of time can lead to injuries as well. It's a little technical, but th those are my thoughts about that question. Do you think one-on-one uh, -on -one sessions between teacher and student will become more popular as opposed to the format of one teacher and one on one is the traditional way yoga was taught except for children yeah. and most of my work with my teacher over four years of living in india in madras with him were one-on-one -on -one private sessions and the first decade of my own teaching i only taught private classes yeah. i don't see a movement towards that i see a movement away from that yeah. um, i think that when Teacher training programs learn 
uh, when, when in teacher training programs, uh, prospective teachers learn the difference between a group class and a private class and learn how to be, and, and are taught how to teach a private class, which is, and its orientation is different than a group class. If more t teachers get educated in really how to do it, rather than just sort of guessing and making it up, uh, I think there'll be more of that. And that's, that is something that speaks to these national organizations like IAYT and Yoga Alliance. The, those are the sort of the leading voices. And if those organizations don't value, I mean, yoga therapy, IAYT does, because that's the nature of yoga therapy. But if Yoga Alliance doesn't value one-on-one -on -one as different than a group class and emphasize that that should be implicit in training, it won't happen. Yeah. I think it should happen. Right. A, it can become part of the curriculum, you know. Yeah, it is in, yeah. our, in our programs, it is part of the curriculum. Uh, there's a lot that you can do in a group class. A lot of good things happen yeah. in a group class, but a lot of, in terms of personal sadhana, individual practice, uh, private classes are invaluable. Yeah. And then I think also just you know, defining this uh, teacher-student relationship, you know. Um, Before you get into yeah. that's a big topic. Let me yeah. just say one last thing about this group and individual class. An individual class is not a teacher who teaches a group class teaching that same sequence to an individual, mm -hmm. which I've seen done. An individual class is where the teacher meets the student where they are, understands why they're there, what their needs and interests are, and then creates a sequence that helps them move from where they are to where they want to go. If you're teaching an individual class, but all you're doing is teaching the same sequence that you taught in a group class, it's not really what a private class is. Right. It seems that more be. of a group class, maybe you, you, know, you, have to, you have to make it more general, right? You have to make your teaching uh, safe for, for everyone. So that what you're, what At you're least saying. you should. Right. And then uh, in, on a one-on-one, -on -one, then you can zoom in and, and deal with the body, the person that's in front of you, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So you were going to say something about teacher-student relationship. Yeah. Um, or just or the external versus the internal. You know, for for myself, I can say the the best thing that came for me. You know, doing my initial uh, yoga training was that it gave me permission to just get down on the floor and move my body however it felt was right. Something that I just wouldn't have done. You know, before developing that that personal practice. And, and, and the, that's on the other end of, of listening to kind of an external voice and their intelligence say, oh, why don't you try this, why don't you, which can be so helpful. So, you know, what is that balance there between like listening to what someone else says, but then that's another, it can be, you can go too far in that where you don't tune in and you don't ask yourself, oh, is this how I want to be moving right now? The instructions that, that they're, that they're giving me. So I, I think it's like a, it's a play between you know those two things and on the philosophical level too with tradition it's it, it's also like that right like there's a tradition a way of doing things but then I also need to check in with myself and say you know do I want to follow this path or, or how do I always work how I feel in this present moment into this into this practice there you go again with another huge question so let me try and address that. Maybe that'll be yeah. sort of how we conclude. Um, and there's a lot of angles I could approach your question from. So I'll just rely on the tradition, uh, how we learn. Um, there's, this is an initiatory lineage. 
I don't mean lineage. Yoga has been transmitted through lineages and it's initiatory. And it's initiatory because originally the insight was received or revealed to deep practitioners. They consider these sources of this knowledge sort of revelatory. It's not that somebody figured it out, it's that they received it. And so the knowledge that was worthy of transmitting generationally was put together in forms like texts, for example, like sutras. So that could be passed on generationally. And the person that learns needs to listen. That's called shravana. Listen to the teachings, receive the teachings, take it in. But then they have to manana, reflect on it. They have to reflect on it as it's relevant in their own experience. But you don't make it up. You receive it. You, by hearing, you're, it's passed on to you by a teacher, you're initiated into it. Then you reflect deeply. And then you put it into practice in your own system. And my teacher said, literally, you study for 10 years before, and you study and practice for 10 years before you teach. And you certainly teach for at least 10 years before you train teachers. But today it's like, mm -hmm. learn to practice on Monday, teach on Tuesday, train teachers on Wednesday, right? So there's lacking some steps. Shravana manana nididhyasa, that's you put it into practice. And then my teacher said, you can't give what you don't have. So it has to be yours. It's like you eat the food. We all breathe the same air, like inhale. We, but we, we, we took the same knowledge in, the, the air in, but now your system is through ventilation, perfusion, circulation and diffusion, absorbing the oxygen and now it's yours. And mine is doing mine. The knowledge is like that. You take it in, but you have to absorb it into your own system, reflect deeply on it, make it yours, practice it, and then you can share it. And your students, when you share it, they're gonna to have to do that same process. It's not that they just clone you, right? So you need a teacher, the tradition says anyway. I mean, there are some that are self-initiated, there's no doubt. But most of us, we need a teacher, we need to receive that, but we don't wanna be like clones or dogmatic. We have to take it in and make sense out of it in our own system and through our own experience and then share it and empower our students to do the same. So uh, the way I think about it is respect what we've received from the teacher, but respect our own experience mm -hmm. and respect the people that we're teaching. Mm -hmm. And that's how it stays alive. And then as teachers, our job, because you, you know, some of, I'm older than some of you and some are older than me, and, but there are yoga teachers that are, that are younger than you, right? So, even though you're 20 and teaching yoga, you want to think about the next generation. Because if it's not passed on, it goes. So part of my dharma is to educate teachers that, that this whole thing is alive in them. I shared the knowledge I've received, but they need to reflect on it, integrate it into their own experience, practice it, and then share it with their students in a way that doesn't make their students dependent on them, but makes their, empowers their students to understand the process for themselves. Mm. So it stays alive. That's my hope. I love this. I'm really glad I asked you that question. Thank you so Fine. much. Mm. Nice to meet you. You too. All man. the best in your yoga journey.